0: Man, thank you, musicians, so much. We appreciate you. Last week, we looked at Canterbury and reflected on the trip that some of us had recently been on. We talked about Canterbury and Anselm, the great British theologian, perhaps the exceptional theologian of the Middle Ages. And this morning, I want to go back to Canterbury, not talk about Anselm, but another character, and a very important subject. I want to introduce you to several people that I think you may find interesting or helpful that have impacted your world, and you probably don't even realize it or know these characters, but who you are today is largely in part because of what they did a long, long time ago in England. Want us to consider Canterbury, Augustine, and the huge subject of Christian humility. There are two Augustans in church history. There's Augustine or Augustine. Americans like to say Augustine, especially if you're from Florida. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, he was the master theologian of the early church. This is not who we're considering this morning. Uh, but both of them are sometimes called Augustine and sometimes called Augustine. And theology class, this usually comes out Augustine. But I want you to consider uh, the life of Augustine. Some people call him St. Augustine of Canterbury. Uh, to introduce him, first I need to introduce you to Bede, just one name, B-E-D-E, Bede. After his death on his tombstone, those of you on the trip, we went to Durham Cathedral, and you may remember that Durham Cathedral, that incredible building, almost 1,000 years old, was built to honor Cuthbert, and the, the front altar was built around the tomb of Cuthbert. But at the far back end of the same cathedral, in a back little chapel, was the tomb of of Bede. And when they cut the stone to put over his tomb, the stone carver put in the word venerable, a respectable, honorable, the venerable Bede, and that's been his name ever since. He wrote this book. Uh, Bede would have expected to be remembered for his Bible commentaries. Nobody's got those, uh, but he wrote The Ecclesiastical History of the English People or the Church History of the English People. It told us most of what we know from the Middle Ages about English Christianity. It told us most of what we really know about English history from that time frame. Bede died on his deathbed. He was dictating the gospel of John into English, from Latin into English. And so Bede is the father of English history. He's the father of English church history. And he's the father of English Bible translation. A remarkable individual. At seven years of age, for reasons we're not sure, he was taken... Uh, to an abbey in Jarrow, it's almost up into Scotland, uh, and left there with the monks. And he was raised by these monks in a very, very scholarly world. And he took to it and he loved it and he became a scholar himself. And he never, hardly ever left Jarrow. He, He didn't travel in Europe or to remote locations, just stayed there with access to a great library and studied and learned and wrote and impacted the church. So I want to share with you two things this morning. We've been studying 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians again this morning. And we're going to look at a story that Bede tells us about early English Christianity. Uh, both of them, I hope, will speak to our hearts about what we're supposed to be on a daily basis. I've got about four quick pictures to show you. James as a master taking my inadequate pictures and making them uh, presentable for the screen. This is off of a brochure uh, purchased at St. Augustine's Abbey. What you're really looking at there is three buildings that are not connected, but they look like it. And the the part closest to you is a wall, and that's all that remains of St. Augustine's Abbey there in the city of Canterbury. There's some more modern buildings in between, and then you see a high, tall tower, gothic-looking tower with four points. And that's the high tower of Canterbury Cathedral that we talked about last week incredible one of the great buildings of the world of all time amazing uh, location there so you see fairly close by about two city blocks apart are Canterbury Cathedral that's still there and then these remains of Augustine's Abbey next slide is a picture in the guidebook and I don't know if you can make that out very well but there's sort of three panels to it and the panel on the left is Gregory Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great was the first, uh, said to be the first of the great medieval popes. Uh, He was the Bishop of Rome. There's a guy on the right hand side of that picture, and his name is Augustine or Augustine. He's receiving it as probably a Bible that's being handed off to him with some instructions from Gregory to Augustine. So let me introduce you just briefly to Gregory. You don't need to know a lot about Gregory. Not right now. He was a massive writer. A lot of things have been preserved, and people that read that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing they read. Uh, They read Gregory. But Gregory, two things I would want you to know about Gregory. Uh, You wouldn't like some of his theology. It wouldn't fit into our Reformation theology or our Baptist theology of today, But there's two things that you would like about him. He had a heart for missions and the expansion of the cause of Christ around the world. And that was with him all of his life. The other thing, he was characterized by many as a man of great humility. There's a title that was attributed to him, uh, the servant of the servants of God. He didn't like to be called a lot of different things. He allowed people to, to call him that, the servant of the servants instead of being at the top of a pyramid he saw himself at the bottom of an inverted pyramid he was there to serve those who would serve others and servant spirit characterized Gregory the Great he was one of the great fathers of the early church along with Ambrose and Jerome who did the the translation of the Latin Vulgate and Augustine of Hippo he was up there in the league with those guys there's one quote uh, from him and it directly applies to what I want to look at in first Corinthians here in a few minutes he said act in such a way that your humility may not be weakness nor your authority severity justice must be accompanied by humility that humility may render justice lovable In other words, when you take justice and biblical truth to the world, do it with humility and people will be drawn to it instead of repelled by it. That was Gregory the Great. When Gregory was young, a young adult, in Italy, not Pope, just part of the clergy, he was in a marketplace where slaves were being sold. And there were two young boys there that looked different from the rest of the crowd. They had lighter hair. Uh, sharper features, lighter skin. And Gregory turned to somebody who was there in the market and said, who are these guys? And the answer was, they are Angli, meaning Anglos, meaning English. They are Angli. And Gregory said, they should not be called Angli, they should be called angels. He was impressed by their appearance and their character, and that stuck with him. And years later, he would become the Pope. And when he became the Pope, he had in his head the Angli, the English, the people up there on the island. The Romans had retreated from the island to try to save the empire, and they lost it anyhow. But they had retreated, leaving behind a remnant of Christianity, and we'll come to that later. But Gregory wanted to reintroduce Christianity to the island of Great Britain, and so he chose Augustine or Augustine to go to Canterbury and do just that as a missionary. Augustine was reluctant. He wanted to be a scholar and hang around monasteries too. Instead, he was sent to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, we're going to return to that story after we look at 1 Corinthians. So keep that in mind. Let me show you quickly two other slides. The next is as some of you saw it a couple of weeks ago, uh, the abbey, uh, the, you see the modern buildings to the top of the picture, the, the ruins of the foundation stones of the abbey that was there uh, built after Augustine went there as archbishop. And they built it into a cathedral-like structure almost as grand as Canterbury Cathedral today. And one more picture of it, an artist rendering of what the inside would have looked like. So it's not as high as Canterbury Cathedral it's not as long but it was for its day a stunning achievement quite a building and remarkable now I want you to turn with me in the scriptures to the Apostle Paul's words in chapter 4 to the Corinthians 1st Corinthians 4 verse 6 and Paul writing to the church and we've seen uh, so much of the Corinthian letters over the last year And we know Paul's heart for these Corinthian believers. Sometimes they were wild and crazy. Sometimes they were sinful. Uh, But he loved them with a father's heart. He loved them with a pastor's heart. And he writes back to the church and he says, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos. Remember, Apollos was the great preacher that replaced Paul pastoring the Corinthians. And there were factions about who was the best pastor and all that crazy stuff. He says, I figuratively applied this truth to myself and Apollos for your sake for a purpose of illustration so that in us you may learn, and listen to Paul's words here. This is the most important verse we'll look at in the passage. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you may become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. The NIV says then you will not be puffed up. Paul was concerned with our subject of the morning, Christian humility. And he says, don't become puffed up. Don't become arrogant. Don't become inflated with your opinion of yourself or your group or your way of doing things. And Paul's calling the church to Christian humility. He says in verse 7, For who, has, uh, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? One of our claims in a Baptist church like this is we're all about grace and the doctrine of grace and that we're saved by grace through faith. It's God's gift to us, not that we deserve, but because God has in Christ made salvation possible for us. And our biblical claim is that every, uh, every breath that we breathe, every uh, drop of water that we drink, everything that we have comes from God. And it comes to us through his mercy and his grace and his goodness. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, what have you got that God didn't give you? And every now and then we kind of look, like, well, but I did this and I, I worked hard. And I, but, but Paul said, no, in the end, in the final analysis, God gave you the brains and the ability and the body and the opportunities. What do you have that didn't ultimately come from God? So uh, sort of deflating our, our pride there on some of that. Paul's cautioning the church to remain humble. In verse 8, he says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Now, in case you're not picking it up, when Paul writes, sometimes he's sarcastic. And sarcasm is usually not a good thing. When Paul uses sarcasm, it is a good thing. It's a righteous sarcasm. It's a way of bringing us to an understanding of what's going on. He says, you're you're rich, you're already filled, and you've become kings without us. That was the mindset of some Corinthians. Apparently, uh, you're so full of yourself, you think you're like a king on a throne. He says, and indeed, I wish you had become kings. In other words, you're not really. I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. Wouldn't it be great if we were all kings? But Paul says the reality is we're not. We're something else in Christ. He says, for I think... God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. As I read that over and over uh, this week I thought of the parade on crucifixion Friday when Jesus was taken from the praetorium out into the streets along the via della rosa to Calvary and the cross And there were people carrying banners and signs and guards and Roman soldiers and all the stuff that you know and you've read and you've seen in the movies. And at the back of the parade, here comes the Son of God to die for us. And Paul, picking up on that imagery, says, the real truth is I think God has taken us, the apostles, and put us at the back of the parade as a spectacle. That's not a good thing. It's a a spectacle of, of the hardships of this life, the potential hardships of this life as a witness to angels and to men, what God's ways are and how God works. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Here's a little bit more of that Pauline sarcasm. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. Uh, Paul is hes really not kind of being hypocritically prideful uh, in this I, i think he's trying to get them to think he says to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless anybody want to be an apostle That was Paul describing the missionary experience of his team as they traveled the the globe, uh, covered the map, spreading the gospel. He says, and we toil working with our own hands. He was a tent maker, made tents to make money, to pay his own way in missions. That's why we talk about tent making missionaries today who pay their own way. And we toil working with our own hands and we are reviled and we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. It's tough. People, Paul says, you want to serve Christ? Don't look for a luxurious, uh, padded, uh, easy go of it. It's challenging. It's tough. And some people don't like you. And they won't like what you stand for. And they won't like what you preach. And they may even hurt you or take your stuff or hurt people that are dear to you. It is tough sometimes being in the cause of Christ. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't be all full of yourself and arrogant and prideful. We're on a different track. We have a different purpose. We're going to glory and heaven's out there someday and it is very much better. But in the meantime, we serve here with Christian humility through all the challenges and all the hardships and all the persecutions. When, verse 13, when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things even until now the scum of the world that's paul's description of himself he says uh, forget the titles forget the fancy garments and the, the thrones and all the stuff we've become the scum of the world there are people that that if they were ranking people they, they put us at the very bottom the dregs of all things and he says we're slandered because of that the scum of the world So don't, if you, he said, Paul is saying, if you want to be involved in New Testament Christianity, don't think it's going to be something that polishes you up and puts you on a throne and, and caters to your every whim. And God's just sitting there waiting to make you happy about everything. He says, it's tough. It's a fallen world. It's a sinful world till Christ returns. It is a fallen, broken world. And we are here as ambassadors for Christ. And it is tough. Paul says, he concludes the Uh, paragraph that we're looking at this morning saying I do not write these things to shame you I'm not trying to embarrass you or humiliate you Corinthians but to admonish you as my beloved children Paul says Paul is so great he says I just love you all so much and I just don't want you to miss it I don't want you to think that Christianity is some prosperity gospel thing where God just does everything you want him to do when you want it done, the way you want it done, instantly, and it's just all rosy. No, we're on a battlefield for the cause of Christ, and he calls us home to that. What a great passage of Scripture. And uh, we could go on for a long time on the Corinthian passage, but I want you this morning, for the next few minutes, to return to our story and go with me back to, not back to Corinth in the first century, but back to Canterbury, in the late 500s, and remember Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, but Augustine of Canterbury, has been sent on his mission, and he arrives at Canterbury. When he gets there, here's the challenge. He is in the lower southeast corner of Great Britain, almost down at the coast where you cross the channel into France, and all that island north of him has got all these crazy groups of people, most of them pagans. And what do you do? Where do you begin? The story's complicated by the fact that there are already Christians there in other locations, not down around Canterbury. But there's a Christian remnant there that's left over from the Roman days. The Romans uh, had come, and by that time, Christian Romans had come and introduced the gospel. If you learned in school, and probably most of you did, unless you're the youngest here, you probably learned in school... That there came a time when the, the old Britons, the British people, were pushed to the west over toward Wales. And that they were nudged out by Angles and Saxons and Jews. Anybody remember learning that? If you learned that, you learned that from Bede. All that comes from the venerable Bede and his account of those occurrences. When those Britons, the early Britons, were pushed to the west, they took their Christian faith with them. And they sustained the church down through many, many years. They were Celtic, like the Irish. We talk about all kind of Irish things around here in March. Uh, The the Welsh and the Irish and the Scots, they're all Celtic people. And they preserved the Christian faith and they had their own church. And if you were given a choice between Augustine's church and their church, you'd probably join the Celtic church. I think I would. And some of you would have uh, their DNA and your, your physical makeup today. The Celtic Christians were already there when Augustine showed up at Canterbury. But they were way out to the west. And so now on the island, the, the great island of Great Britain, you've got two Christianities. Roman Christianity now at Canterbury and Celtic Christianity to the west and to the north. And so the obvious question arises, what do we do about this? Uh, do we work together? Are we on the same page? Are we brothers in Christ? Do we, do we preach the same gospel? Or would it be more productive if we work together? The obvious questions that you and I would ask if we had been there in that transitional time. And so the Celtic leadership got together and they said, this is what we'll do. We will send a delegation to Canterbury and we will meet Augustine and we will find out what he's about. We will will see what we think of him and we will see if we can work together with him. For the common cause of Christ, better to be one than divided if we can find unity And so uh, they begin to make their preparations and they said, well, what what do we do when we get there? What are the questions? And so they they found the oldest, wisest Celtic Christian patriarch that they could. The guy who was always known for great counsel. And, And B gives us the story of their approach to him. They said, when we go to Canterbury, what do we do? And the old wise man said, when you get to Canterbury and you meet Augustine and the other Christians that have come from the Roman world, to our island when you meet them if there's a spiritual connection there uh, then we'll endeavor to work with them because there's no point in working against them and we can unify and for the greater good of the cause uh, we can work with them and so the ambassadors that were to represent the celtic church uh, to augustine said well how do we know what do we what do we look for when we get there and the old wise man said this is what you're going to do When you get there, he will be in his place in a chair, a throne-like chair. He says, I want you to make sure that you get there last. Make sure that he's already there when you get there. And when you go in, uh, he will respond to you one way or another. If he rises out of his chair to greet you as ambassadors of the Celtic church, He's a brother in Christ. It will be a demonstration of his Christian humility. And we will work with these people. And that will be our sign. But if he stays in his seat, he's puffed up and arrogant, as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. And so they said, well, okay. And so that's what they did. And they went uh, across England, down to Canterbury, uh, found Augustine. They they delayed to make sure he was in place. By the time they got there, they entered the room to meet Augustine, who had been sent there by Pope Gregory. Now, anybody want to vote? This is when you need one of those audience participation things. Uh, He stayed in the chair. He got out of the chair. Do you think he stayed in the chair or got up? The Celts walked in and stood before him. And Augustine stayed in his chair and he didn't rise. And the Celts looked at each other and they said whatever niceties they needed to and kind of closed the meeting out and and they went home and reported back to the leadership back at the base. We went in, we did everything we were told to do and he stayed in his chair and he never rose to greet us as brothers in Christ. Now that was a big mistake. Now Augustine may be a wonderful guy that somebody made him a saint later. Maybe a great man may have accomplished many things for the cause of Christ in advance. The Celts were bringing the gospel through Iona into uh, Scotland and then south from Lindisfarne, Holy Island that some of you went to recently. They were bringing the gospel from the north to the south, and, and the, the church at Canterbury was going to push from the south to the north, and hopefully God would sovereignly bring the two together and evangelize the island. But the Celts went home discouraged and disappointed and what appeared to be the character of Augustine. That was in five, sometime shortly after 597. 597 is when Augustine goes to Canterbury. Very soon after that, the Celts went down and met with him. For over 60 years, that separation continued. Finally, in 663 or 664, the Synod of Whitby, the two churches got together and hammered out their differences. Most of the argument was about when to have Easter, and why, why that? And the other argument was about how priests would cut their hair. Uh, but those were the two arguments. It mostly was about authority, I think, and who could tell who how to do what. But they finally, at, the, at Whitby, they hammered out their differences and got on the same page and had a unified English church from that point forward. So they wasted about 60-something years because one guy wouldn't get up out of his seat because of arrogance, because pride had crept into character and, and it was not a good thing. Now, that's a story about English Christianity and it did impact your world. But what about us? Paul's writing not just to Corinthians. Paul's writing to us. And he's saying to all of us, and you might be here as a pastor or a deacon or a trustee or a Sunday school teacher. Or you might have some grand role um, in the cause of Christ. Or you may think of yourself as insignificant. We are on common ground at the foot of the cross. And Paul was right when he said, what do you have that you, that you weren't given? Everything you have, you have by grace. And it calls all Christians to Christ and away from arrogance to humility and out of that humility the church can go forward in astounding ways and travels in Zambia I've learned from Zambians and Malawians both the virtue they cherish most above all else is humility and they will pick up on humility or the lack thereof very quickly and that's just because they're human it's, it's, it's a universal thing and the lack of humility will defeat the cause of Christ. You say, well, I'm, it's hard to be more humble than I am. I just, you know, I, and people, it's, we're not talking about having a low self-esteem or something. We're talking about your attitude about other people. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and Bede, is, Bede was uh, really more pro-Canterbury than he was Celtic. That's, those were more his people. But he tells that story to say to the church in the Middle Ages, don't be like that. Get up out of the chair. Don't be arrogant and prideful and boastful. Jesus wasn't. Paul, by his testimony this morning, Paul wasn't. Peter wasn't. The giants of the Christian faith are characterized by humility. And they not only teach us to be like that, they model it for us and say, this be that your personality won't hinder the cause of Christ, that you won't become an obstacle or a, a stumbling block to people coming to Christ or doing great things for the kingdom. We are a society, a community of the humble. Strong in character, it doesn't mean that all Christians need to be milk toasty and wishy-washy and weak and run over by the world. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what Bede was trying to convey by his story. We're strong in our character, but we're strong with biblical humility, which is the height, the strength. Augustine would have been stronger had he stood from his chair and greeted those men as brothers. That would have been real strength. Now, you've got to go home and work on your own personal application because uh, where you're called to be and the circumstances in which you're to communicate humility, uh, it's going to be different for everybody a little bit. But the unifying uh, universal principle for all of us is Christian humility. Don't become uh, convinced of your priceless worth to the church as though the church couldn't function without you. We bury people all the time around here and, and the, the church goes on. We've got 2,000 years of church history and uh, how, how can we possibly be making it without the, the believers from the book of Acts? And the church goes on. And sometimes the second and the next generation and the one after that are stronger than those that preceded them. We are not called to be arrogant or prideful or irreplaceable. We are here as servants. May it be, we don't need any titles or banners over us or anything like that or pictures demonstrating this. But might it be true of each of us in these coming days that that title attributed to Gregory a long, long time ago would be true of us. A servant of the servants of Christ. And when you walk through these doors, you're not coming in here to get what you want, whether it's music or the style of preaching or the the cushions on the pews or anything else. You're here to be a servant of the servants of Christ. If you can get that into your head and your heart, this will be a phenomenal church. And many of you have already grasped that, and it's a beautiful thing to see. We are here to be the servants of the servants of Christ for God's glory, because everything we've got was given to us. And we'll talk about that in the evening service. Bow with me. Father, we're grateful this morning that we are recipients of your profound and overwhelming grace. There indeed is nothing that we have that was not given to us through your mercies and your goodness. And so we pause to give thanks. Lord, we are humans, so there's something within us all that might incline toward a faulty attitude of pridefulness within us. Lord, would you deflate our pride and our arrogance and our boastfulness and help us, Lord, this day to be servants of the servants of Christ. Uh, Teach us what biblical humility looks like and help us to live it in our daily life experience that this church and your church around the world might go forward with fresh life and fresh encouragement so that when the Celtic believers of our world come before us, they'll find love and encouragement and that they will be built up in the faith because of how we respond to them. We ask for your help in that. We do so in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who might have never given his or her life to Christ, and I pray for believing faith and encouragement. I pray that they might be drawn by your grace to your presence. Lord, we look to you in faith. We do so with thanksgiving.